Hello everyone, this uh, is uh, Giulio Prisco, and this episode of the Tuning Church podcast is going to be a conversation with Heinrich Bess, uh, who wrote uh, a book called The One, How an Ancient Idea Holds the Future of Physics, to be published uh, next week. Uh, I have also a book review in my newsletter. Uh, Heinrich wrote a previous book called The Perfect Wave, with Neutrinos at the Boundary of Space and Time, published in uh, 2014. Hello, Henrik. Thank you very much for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay. So let's uh, take a look at uh, some questions I have in mind. But before talking about your new book, let's uh, talk a bit about your previous book and i'm just wondering if you have we have uh, any new intel on uh, those uh, neutrinos that uh, travel to the past of our brain world going through the multi-dimensional box space of string theory uh you have anything to add about that to your previous book mm, unfortunately there's there are not so much news about that i mean uh when i wrote my first book the the perfect wave uh these were exciting times for particle phenomenologists since um there were all these ideas we uh that that were floating around we uh were discussing uh that could uh, explain why the higgs boson was supposedly so so light and um the idea was that uh such ideas could be tested at the uh large hadron collider in, in geneva at cern and um, it turned out, unfortunately, that the uh, Large Hadron Collider found the Higgs boson, which is a nice thing. So it confirmed the Higgs mechanism and also that the Higgs boson is light. But it didn't find any new physics beyond the standard model, uh, which could explain why the Higgs is so light. And um, one of the uh, popular ideas uh, why the Higgs could be so light were large extra dimensions. So string theory predicts more than three dimensions in space. And um, the idea was that these idea, these dimensions could be actually pretty large. And um, so uh, this way, uh, yeah, um, uh, be responsible for the, for the Higgs being light. So there were several mechanisms discussed. And uh, so uh, what we were doing, uh, we were um, discussing many ideas how physics uh, how, how neutrinos could test these new physics beyond the standard model, and among them, of course, extra dimensions. And um, so uh, one idea uh, we, we were exploring was whether these extra dimensions could allow for uh, time travel, for, for traveling back in time. And um, yeah, so um, unfortunately, so far, no extra dimensions or large extra dimensions have been found so there's not much new on, on this front. Um, I think it's, it's still interesting to, to explore this possibility and maybe uh, in the future at higher energies, we could find something. But um, the reason that we didn't find new physics at the Large Hadron Collider was also uh, one of the reasons uh, for me to take a step back and to say, well, uh, maybe we thought, rethink how we do physics in the first place and is the standard way of doing particle physics meaning looking for small things uh, at high energies really the right way to go or should there be other alternative uh, possibilities to be explored so let's keep uh, waiting uh, for that uh, let's move to the very far future before coming back to the earth right now and i remember that some time ago i was reading uh, an interview with your uh, research uh, team produced by team ventura i believe and uh, in the interview i read that your colleague thomas weiler said uh, that uh, perhaps i'm uh, quoting perhaps in the distant future we will evolve so that our consciousness resides in a bowl of sterile neutrinos. Then we can teletransport ourselves. This, uh, I, mean, I found this uh, really 
uh, awesome and something that sounds like uh, cosmist uh, transhumanism on steroids. Do you uh, show briefly and comment on these things? Yeah, I mean, Tom is uh, is a very humorous person, so I don't know how how serious this comment was, but um, I I think it makes sense uh, when we want to understand things that we really go to the most extreme consequences of our ideas and theories. Right. And if we think about extra dimensions, then we should think what, what this means for our notion of space and time and whether there could be some dramatic consequences such as time travel. And um, of course, one could think if there's a possibility to copy consciousness, maybe it's just information, maybe we can copy it from one hardware to the, another, and where then maybe one possible hardware would be sterile neutrinos, and then maybe we could uh, yeah, uh, send consciousness back in time or something like that. But I mean, these are, these are um, very speculative ideas. I mean, it's, it's not only that we didn't find sterile neutrinos yet, it's also that we didn't find extra dimensions. And if we find extra dimensions, we don't know whether they lead to time travel. And then we don't really know what consciousness is. So, so there are many, many speculations stacked on top of each other. But, but I think it's, it's interesting to, to entertain these extreme speculations to, to get a feeling what, what might be possible. I mean, doesn't, doesn't mean that it has to be possible or, uh, how, how big the chances are, but but we should keep all these possibilities in mind. Yes, and they would uh, totally uh, agree on that. In fact, if uh, you couple the possibility of uh, time uh, travel, or at least the possibility of uh, uh, extracting information from the past at as high a resolution as you like, I, it seems to me that uh, your uh, theory would imply that uh, future humans could perhaps migrate uh, outward into the bulk or to other uh, brain world. They could travel in time. And then at that point, they could resurrect the dead from the past by coping them out of their uh, time and uh, mind uploading them to the future or to the block itself, to another brain world. The possibilities are infinite. Of course, uh, we cannot say much about that at this moment. Actually, we cannot say anything at all. I suspect that we will keep not understanding these things well enough for uh, thousands of years. But as you say, yes, it's uh, very fascinating to entertain uh, wild speculations about these things yeah I, I agree i mean these are wild speculations but but it's interesting to to entertain them not not just for entertainment but but also since uh thinking about these things can teach us something about about our ideas about our understanding of nature right i also think so now let's uh move our new book and by the way thank you very much for sending me an advanced copy i really enjoyed a lot reading i'm, uh, I'm happy about that <laughs> what uh, you have to say of course uh, uh hugh everett is one of the main heroes of your book but uh you know his uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics has been uh, interpreted uh many times and in many different ways we have uh uh, questions uh, about where, whether we live in many small worlds or in one big world with uh, capital B. We have these uh, many minds uh, idea. So to start with, what is your own interpretation of uh, Everett's interpretation of quantum mechanics? Well, I think, um, I mean, it how how we understand Everett's interpretation depends a little bit uh, under which perspective we look at it, and I think we will come come later back back to these these topics of perspective. But um, so uh, um, one point about Everett is that that his original thesis had the name the universal wave function, and um, then uh, Vila. Uh, his his um, PhD advisor John Wheeler, famous physicist, uh, he uh, 
he came in and uh, he, he edited his thesis, also since he didn't want to have a conflict with Bohr, who was his mentor. Right. And um, so under the influence of Wheeler, Everett's universal wave function became the relative state interpretation. And uh, still, uh, Bohr and uh, other people from his circle uh, who adhered to the so-called Copenhagen interpretation, uh, they didn't like Everett's ideas and, and um, didn't take them serious. And some even uh, tried uh, to, to um, yeah, uh, to, uh, to um, suppress them. Uh, then um, at some point, uh, Bryce DeWitt uh, came in and um, he read Everest's thesis and liked it. And um, he described it as many words interpretation. He was concentrating on um, uh, the fact that if you have uh, if if um, if the possible states of a quantum object get entangled with an outer world, then uh, there's correlation of the outer world and each of the outcomes of these uh, quantum states or each of the possible states of the quantum system, and uh, this can be seen as many words. So so. Um, uh, Bryce DeWitt called it many words. He wrote a famous Physics Today article about it. And this is what, the, this was the label it, it, um, under which it got popular. Um, but I think it's, it's a little bit of an, uh, it's, it's somewhat misleading, this label. Since um, these many words, they are not fundamental. They are emergent. They uh, are a consequence of the local perspective of an observer. And on the most fundamental level, uh, as Everett wrote himself, there's this universal wave function which describes one quantum world. And only from the perspective of a local observer, this one quantum world uh, yeah, uh, dissolves into parallel uh, quasi-classical many worlds. So, so I, I believe in one fundamental world, which is actually more one than, than just one word, since it's essentially just one right. single quantum state. Yeah, in fact, I've been thinking about this for many years. And uh, at some point, I went and read the, uh, the original, very first version of Everett's paper. And I realized that, that he never uses the word, uh, uh, many words. Uh, at all. He just at one point uh, makes a reference to a uh, uh, universe like an uh, uh, amoeba splitting mm -hmm. many ones, but that's really right. the only place where he does that. So yes, that's the impression I always had that Everett is uh, really talking about one world. Yes. And uh, what about this um, very interesting uh, variant of uh, ev uh, how to say of David's interpretation of Everett's interpretation mm -hmm. uh, introduced by Dieter Zay, where he talks of many minds. Yeah, I, I think the the name many minds actually goes back to philosopher David Albert. Um, say it I'm, again, David. David Albert. Ah, yes. Yeah, but um, but I think uh, yeah, Zay Zay preferred this this label many minds over many words, since um, it describes that it's something perspectival, that it's, it's not the universe splitting, but essentially the observer splits. And um, the observer uh, with his experience or her experience uh, of the state of a quantum object and the state of the entire universe. So many minds, describes uh, what's happening better than, than many words. Right. I right. agree with, with C and, and with Albert on that. Yeah, I would also tend to agree. In fact, uh, you know, sometimes I have been thinking that, okay, if there is another version of my mind, and then besides that one, there is another version of my mind, all of them uh, perceiving different things. 
then it would make some kind of sense to me if all these minds, all these individual minds were combined into some kind of a super mind, uh, which is uh, still individual and associated with me, but uh, not uh, yet as uh, general as some kind of universal mind, something halfway between. Mm -hmm. um, so you you mean all these all these many minds of the of the many minds interpretation? Yes, but but I mean decoherence de would would somehow uh, uh, separate them, right? So unless there is some residual interference. Yes, yes. I mean that that that's possible, but but usually under under usual circumstances, decoherence is very effective. And uh, it suppresses very, very um, rapidly uh, these, these interferences under, under usual circumstances. Interesting. Uh, and in fact, uh, the coherence is one of the things that um, I want uh, to discuss next. And before going into the coherence, it seems to me that, uh, you know, Dieter Z should have received the Nobel in physics for his work on the coherence. In fact, well, uh, the Nobel is given for a theoretical world when it is confirmed by experiment, but I believe there are many experimental confirmations of the basic uh, idea of the coherence. Uh, was Z ever a candidate that you know of to the Nobel Prize? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, if I would have asked to nominate people for the Nobel Prize when Steve Z was, was still alive, I definitely would have nominated him. I think he, he definitely deserved it. Um, but... Um, Yeah, uh, unfortunately, um, I, well, I, I don't know whether others nominated him. I, I think it could, could well be possible, but, but I don't know for sure. What I know for sure is that he was nominated several times for the um, Max Planck Medal of the German Physical Society, but even that he never got. So, oh, um, that's, um, so I think, that. yeah, I think he... he really was underrated. I think he was really one of the of the big heroes of quantum mechanics, such as uh, Bohr and Heisenberg and Schrödinger. And um, yeah, he, he didn't really get, get the credit or appreciation of, of what he did. Although he found this very important mechanism, which explains so much about how the world becomes classical. Even, I mean, if you still think there are other mechanisms playing a role in the quantum to classical transition besides decoherence. I don't think so. I think decoherence explains the quantum to classical transition. But even if you think there are other, other mechanisms at work, decoherence is so important that I think uh, they should have gotten the Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's really too bad that you cannot get the Nobel Prize uh, uh, when uh, you're no longer here. Yeah. It should be something like uh, posthumous uh, recognition. By the way, did you yourself study with C? Um, no, no, I didn't study with C. Um, but uh, I um, I knew knew people who studied with C. I mean, when, when I was a diploma student, uh, uh, another student in my group, he had done his... Uh, well, actually, I was a PhD student already, and he was a PhD student, but he had done his diploma with C. And uh, so already at that time, we started to discuss about decoherence. And um, I was thinking about how this is related with uh, many words. Uh, finally, say, although he was a, a, an advocate of Everett's interpretation, for some time, uh, didn't like to say this clearly, since uh, he knew that there was some some, uh, yeah, that, that, that many people didn't take Everett's interpretation serious. And um, so uh, that, that this could harm his, his research and, right. and his, uh, his um, standing in, in the community. So, so for quite some time, uh, he 
supported the average interpretation only somewhat between the lines. And, and I remember that, that I was thinking and, uh, uh, well, actually this is supporting average interpretation. And, and uh, in later writings of, of C, it gets really clear that, that it is of course. Right. So, um, you know, in the book, you describe the coherence, but uh, in a very qualitative way, uh, with uh, very nice word pictures for uh, the general public. Now, I'm uh, hoping that um, you could now uh, bring the coherence to a little bit higher uh, level without mathematics, of course, but maybe explain a couple of things uh, in more detail for those uh, who have done some more readings on mathematics and quantum physics, uh, based, of course, on what you say in the book. Yes. So I think um, an important uh, condition for decoherence is entanglement. So entanglement uh, is also the reason uh, why I think uh, that the entire universe is one single unified whole. Since in an entangled quantum system, you can perfectly know the total system, but you don't know anything about the subsystems. And um, so interaction creates entanglement. And um, so we should expect that the universe is, is one big entangled quantum state. So now what happens in a quantum measurement? In the quantum measurement, we have at least three uh, agents or objects. We have uh, the observer, we have the quantum system we look at, and we have the rest of the universe. And um, what happens uh, in decoherence is uh, that um, the observer uh, is, a, is, a, is a local local being. I mean, it, it exists at a specific place in the universe, and it doesn't know about the entire universe, of course. So um, what you do technically is um, when you know uh, a quantum state perfectly, then you say this is a pure state. So it's in one specific state with 100% probability. And um, you can describe that by, by a density matrix, which has only one entry, which corresponds to the standard percent probability. Um, if you look at a pure state quantum system, and you look only at a subsystem, and this pure state quantum system is entangled, then you trace out the information of the rest of the system. Uh, which is some kind of averaging process. And you end up with a reduced density matrix. And this reduced density matrix uh, doesn't describe a pure state anymore. It describes a mixed state, which is with certain probabilities in certain states. And um, in the extreme case, in, in maximal entanglement, if you have two po possible states, it is with 50% in either of the states. So essentially you don't know anything about the system. And um, this uh, probability then corresponds to the probability of the observer to observe the first state or the second state, for example, uh, the electron spinning left or spinning right. Oh, that's uh, uh, this interesting point that you, know, you have uh, described, skipping the mathematics, of course, how the off-diagonal terms of the density matrix become very small and they do so very fast. But do they just only become very small or do they become exactly zero? No, they just become very small. So there is yeah. always some kind of uh, residual uh, interference between realities. Exactly, yes. And that doesn't it's an, it's an exponential curve. So, so yes, but uh, suppressed, but it, but doesn't. Um, in principle, of course, uh, doesn't that um, kind of uh, fly in the face of the very neat 
separations between uh, classical worlds that uh, we can perceive. Yeah, I, I think actually classical physics is an approximation, an approximation which ignores these tiny um, interferences. Right. So that, um, you know, we can consider this uh, picture as uh, an approximation, a very useful one to hold on until uh, we don't know more about how exactly and uh, quantitatively the, the coherence mechanism works. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yes. Well, 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 I mean, we, we, we know pretty well how, how um, decoherence works. And, and we know that it, it doesn't really go to zero, the interference, but um, uh, it gets so small that it, it's a good approximation to, to think about uh, decohered objects as classical objects. But in principle, they are only quasi-classical. This is also a term C uses. They, they are not really classical objects. They are still quantum objects, but they are only quasi-classical. We cannot, uh, uh, for example, imagine uh, some, some kind of uh, yet uh, not understood mechanism after which, uh, you know, as soon as uh, the interference uh, terms become very small, they are uh, suddenly in a jump uh, brought to exactly zero. You know, that would be kind of like a quantization of uh, probability, which I believe was uh, proposed in the 30s or 40s and then uh, essentially forgotten. Um, in fact, related to this, there is this point that uh, I wanted to mention and hear uh, your opinion about, about whether the physically real worlds could be only a subset of all possible average worlds. The image that I have in mind is uh, uh, like, uh, you know, high probability worlds could absorb low probability worlds, like a big soap bubble absorbs a small one. Uh, Robin Hanson did some uh, suggestions on this, and also David Walls mentions it in his uh, uh, Emergent Multiverse book. Uh, do you have anything to say about that, by any chance? Well, I, I can't say much about it. I mean, uh, just to, to say uh, what, what you said before, that um, uh, very small probabilities could jump into zero probabilities, but this would violate the unitarity of the of the wave function evolution, right? So, so this is um, what would be a departure from the average picture, uh, similar to a physical collapse, I would say. And uh, it also uh, probably is, is difficult to to um, to make consistent with with relativity, just just as a as a um, physical collapse. Uh, uh, about this other idea that that. Um, well, but you know, hold on. Uh, quantum uh, mechanics is already difficult to make consistent with general relativity, at least. I no, no, but I, I so I, that uh, I, I meant special relativity. You meant special relativity, yeah. and would <laughs> the, this, uh, you know, uh, giving up uh, unitarity would it be such a big deal in your uh, opinion? Well, um, I I think this is just one of the of the main character characteristics of the Everett interpretation that you say, well, um, we have this wave function and it uh, it evolves according to the Schrodinger equation or some some relativistic generalization of the Schrodinger equation. Uh, so so it's it's a it's a deterministic unitary evolution, and uh, there's nothing sudden happening. That there, there are no jumps or no 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 discrete things happening. It's, it's just a smooth, uh, continuous, uh, unitary deterministic evolution. Even if it looks for us, of course, uh, non-deterministic and non-unitary and so on. But this is only from our perspective. Right. 
So since you just uh, said uh, the D word, deterministic, where do you stand on uh, the never-ending issue of determinism and free will? Um, I I think actually these uh, these things are not exclusive. I I think one one is confusing two different perspectives there. I mean, uh, I, I I think. The average interpretation says the universe is deterministic, and uh, I think the average interpretation is, is the best interpretation we have for for quantum mechanics. Um, but um, I think for us, uh, from our uh, individual subjective perspective, uh, this feels like free will. What happens in our in our consciousness in our brains? This feels like free will, although it is deterministic. Um, for example, to, to make this more clear, I, if uh, if um, the, the question is what what is meant if we say free will, I mean, if if it would just be arbitrary how we choose things, then it wouldn't be free will. I mean, this exactly. it was just probabilistic. Uh, it wouldn't free will since I mean our personality wouldn't enter there, and this is a very, uh, very important thing for free will that I can uh, decide according to my ideas to my personality. So, so I think what our decisions are determined on some level, but uh, the level uh, where I start speaking even of myself is a different, more cost-grained, more emergent level. On, on this level, it makes sense to talk about free will, even if it doesn't exist on the most fundamental level. But I, myself, also doesn't exist on the most fundamental level. In fact, I have the impression that uh, people use uh, determinism in two different senses, where uh, one is something is deterministic if uh, you can... Uh, predict what will happen mm -hmm. and another is that uh, something is deterministic if uh, it can happen only one way and uh, these two definitions uh, do not mean the same thing not at all uh, where uh, do you stand on this uh, good question I mean uh I, I think the the second, I mean, well, the predicting things is, is difficult often, right? I mean, for example, right. deterministic, deterministic chaos, right. when we have complex systems, we can't really predict in which direction the system goes. Uh, things like like the weather or or um, even even complex pendulars which are coupled and so on. Uh, still. Uh, these things are deterministic. If we knew exactly the state of the system and all influences on the system, then in principle, we could predict how the system would evolve, but we can't since we, we don't now with infinite accuracy the state of the system and we don't now with infinite accuracy what uh, kind of uh, distortions could, could affect the system. So um, I, I think the second... Um, the second definition uh, is the better one that I mean so so if you if you talk like a physicist when you are in, on a on a phase space trajectory that this phase space trajectory is one curve and it doesn't split or two phase space trajectories never never cross or meet each other right so I think uh, uh, we both agree that uh, the right definition of determinism is uh, of something that uh, can happen only one way, even if we ourselves are not able to tell uh, which way. Right. Mm, uh, by the way, mm, thinking about uh, how determinism could uh, be broken in uh, fundamental physics, uh, there is this idea that suppose uh, um, your mathematical model uh, allows for uh, retrocausality. 
something that can be loosely described as influences from the future to the past. Of course, uh, that would uh, break determinism right now because you know, I would need some information that uh, I cannot have, not because the calculation is difficult, but because it's impossible in uh, principle. Now, I do have the feeling that uh, some kind of retrocausality is not incompatible with the world picture that you put forward in the book. Is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, we, we are back to the, to the time travel um, ideas, right? I mean, so, so I'm also not sure whether, whether uh, retrocausality really would, would be in conflict with determinism. I mean, there... Uh, not in the second think, sense, but in the first sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Because in the second sense, we could have a self-consistent uh, retrocausal uh, yeah. time loop and uh, the I mean. in principle would not be broken. Yeah, I think Novikov had such ideas uh, about um, closed timeline curves and uh, where still the entire picture is consistent and uh, can go only in one way, yes. And um, uh, in the context with quantum mechanics, David Deutsch was entertaining these ideas that, for example... Uh, you have these average branches, and when you travel into the past, you just don't end up on the same average branch, but on a different average branch, and that this could make close time like curves and time travel uh, consistent. <laughs> so it's it's not not necessarily excluded, I would say. Interesting. Now let's uh, come to frogs and ants and birds and birds. You say that uh, we are like frogs or ants that are uh, sort of uh, trapped on a surface and uh, experience uh, reality locally and uh, time after time. And this would be opposed to a theoretical global view of reality uh, all at once. That is what uh, Tegmark calls uh, birds' view, and Wilczek calls uh, 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 God's eye view. Uh, now, is this just a theoretical metaphor, or do you think that beings could exist that uh, live in this uh, high-level perspective? Um, yeah, first, first, I would, would like to, to differentiate a little bit between uh, Tegmark's frog and bird perspectives, which uh, describe uh, an observer which observes locally uh, a decohered world, and um, the bird is an observer which uh, observes globally the non-decohered total state. Uh, the and and God perspectives of Wilczek, they actually don't refer to quantum mechanics, but to relativity. Uh, and they say, the, uh, they, they mean that the and perspective is the perspective of an observer uh, who, uh, who goes along a trajectory in space-time. And the God's view would be the outside view on the entirety of space-time where he sees or she sees the, the entire trajectory and, and everything around. So um, uh, first, these things uh, are different, but I think when we start thinking about quantum gravity, uh, they come together. And then uh, in quantum gravity, probably... Uh, uh, we can identify the frog with the ant and uh, the bird with the god. Um, but uh, if you ask whether there could be really uh, yeah, someone who looks from outside, uh, I, I think uh, it's easier to, to, to think about a bird than to think about a god. Since um, the, the bird is someone who looks from outside 
on the entire quantum system. For example, if we have an isolated quantum system, somebody observing this quantum system would be, would be a bird. Uh, if this quantum system is, is uh, interacting with the, with, with, with the surroundings, then a bird would be someone who had to look at the entire universe. Uh, the um, God's perspective is a timeless perspective. And um, there, I think it will be difficult to, to think about yeah, uh, someone, the thinking being uh, outside time. I think thinking consciousness is always a process in time. And uh, I think a timeless process, um, at least I, I have difficulties to think about a conscious being uh, without time. Yeah, that's uh, a difficulty that uh, I have as well. You, uh, you know, being a god living in a timeless uh, eternity seems uh, kind of boring because uh, uh, nothing happens. Um, unless, uh, I must be wrong here somewhere, but I have the feeling that a god in this sense could be a thinking being only if uh, there is uh, another time-like direction, something sideways where uh, things can change? Mm, well, difficult. <laughs> But that's also, yeah. not, uh, that's also not incompatible with your uh, uh, overall picture, I think. Well, I'm, I'm not, not sure. I, I, I think on the very fundamental I mean, level... Uh, you have uh, one time uh, emerging after the coherence from right. uh, the one... But mm -hmm. then you could also have another time emerging after another step of the coherence and then another one and so on. You would have an infinite uh, layer of emerging times. I, I have to think about it. Maybe one could, could think about something like that. But, but then I think it's, it's not really a godlike being if, if it's still partly decohered, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's still a bird, like, you know, a bigger bird and a bigger bird and a bigger mm -hmm. bird on that. You retrieve uh, the concept of God asymptotically, but not mm -hmm. uh, in any step of the Yeah, may, Yeah, may, I agree. Maybe, maybe it works. I mean, it definitely could work for birds. And, and I, I think I agree that it also could, could work for gods, yes. <laughs> in fact, these uh, uh, beings that um, live outside our uh, world that exists uh, in time was uh, in the film Interstellar and in the book that uh, Kip Thorne wrote about the science of Interstellar, he says interesting things about what the perception of these uh, bulk beings uh, could be. But another uh, thing that I wanted to mention is that you mentioned uh, quantum gravity. Uh, but now, couldn't uh, a similar um, split between high-level view and low-level view also be found in uh, general uh, relativity itself, the classical theory without bothering quantum physics, a uh, thing that I have in mind, I'm just thinking aloud, that, you know, is uh, known that if uh, you allow uh, naked singularities as uh, solutions of uh, Einstein's equations, and as far as I know, they cannot be ruled out mathematically at this moment, uh, then you reintroduce non-determinism in uh, general relativity. So that uh, you still have a deterministic world which becomes non-deterministic from our point of view because we cannot access the information that we would need to find out how things will develop. I don't know if I made my point clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure whether, whether I, I fully understand you. 
but but it sounds it sounds interesting. I mean, <laughs> you know, like uh, suppose you have a make the singularity, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, cannot be entirely ruled out theoretically, as far as I'm aware. Now, this naked singularity would uh, break uh, the deterministic description of the world uh, mm-hmm. uh, in its surroundings. So the world, which uh, would be still deterministic from a higher perspective, mm-hmm. becomes uh, non-deterministic from our perspective, just like the quantum world. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sounds sounds um yeah, sounds sounds interesting at least. I, I would have to think more about it, but but it sounds uh like yeah, I, I like the idea. <laughs> I'm thinking about it and uh, sending you thoughts. Okay. Uh, now coming back to one of the most important uh, points uh, in your book. Now, you mentioned this uh, preferred basis problem um, and you explain it uh, for uh, people who uh, haven't done much readings about physics. Now, uh, could you explain it in a little bit more uh, detail? And also say what is uh, the solution, your solution to the problem, and uh, elaborate on this uh, very interesting idea that the solution could be related to how human consciousness works. Yeah. So, um, so the problem is uh, that um, well, already uh, Niels Bohr said had this idea about complementarity that. Uh, we could describe a quantum system either as a particle or as a wave. And this works with, with different properties of quantum systems. Uh, so uh, when we describe the quantum system in a Hilbert space, as physicists do, then uh, the different states in uh, corresponding to different positions uh, they correspond to one basis of the Hilbert space. And similarly, the different uh, wave states correspond to one uh, basis of the Hilbert space. Now, uh, if we say we, during a measurement, we have decoherence, and um, then uh, we end up with a quasi-classical uh, system, then... Um, it is not a priori clear whether this system we end up has a defined position. For example, a plane wave has no defined positions. It is stretched out over the entire universe, but a particle has a defined position. And um, we yeah, experience a world where things exist at defined positions. I mean, our... Uh, our houses have addresses which which are at places uh, at spe- specific, yeah, at, at localized at specific places in the universe, and and not, for example, at a certain frequency and near out over the entire space of the universe. So um, the question is, why do we live in a universe where things exist at certain places and not, for example, at certain frequencies or wavelengths. And um, so this is the preferred basis problem. The the preferred basis appears to be the basis where things have defined positions and not defined wavelengths. And um, so decoherence a priori uh, doesn't single out uh, preferred basis. Um, Of course, one can say uh, if we have, if we know our interaction is locally, and this will, and this interaction d- during the measurement process usually, uh, or yeah, typically uh, dominates the evolution of the quantum system, then we end up uh, with a 
with a um, quasi-classical system, which uh, is uh, yeah has 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 a definite um, state in the in the position basis. Um, but uh, when when we talk about the interaction Hamiltonian, then we already have started to split the universe into uh, different parts of the universe and, and interactions between these parts. And uh, this factorization uh, also is not a priori guaranteed. I mean, we, we start with, with a single quantum state, which is entangled. And uh, uh, when we start to talk about subsystems, uh, this is already uh, some assumption about this single quantum state, which, which is, could, could be this thought this way or another way. So um, the question is, why do we see things or why do we experience things that are at defined positions? And um, I think it, it, is, it is natural to say we are, what, what we know is that we, we see things at definite positions um, if our interaction is local. And this is natural since, since we are local beings and, and our consciousness, which experiences the universe is, is confined in our brain. But um, then, yeah, one could ask, so, so, so this is uh, how I think consciousness could enter or could play an important role in, in the Everett interpretation that uh, since our consciousness is confined locally to our brains, we interact locally with the universe. And this uh, then um, implies that uh, the coherence ends up uh, with quasi-classical objects, which are defined at specific places in the universe. But then one could ask, of course, could it be different? Could there be uh, consciousness or conscious beings whose consciousness is not localized? And um, this, I think, is an interesting question. Right. Uh, um, yes, in fact, um, you know, um, isn't uh, um, um, I have the impression that uh, at uh, this uh, point uh, in uh, the logical flow of the argument, uh, we have not defined locality yet. So doesn't uh, don't things become a, doesn't the argument becomes a bit circular? Um, e, well, the, the the problem is, um, I mean, the problem is uh, it it becomes circular in a way. I think if if we if we assume that we we are local beings, I think then then it works out fine, right? We get, but what we does get local mean? preferred basis which which is uh which is um local in space but um if we don't make this assumption uh then it could be different and then then the question is why why are we uh local beings or could it be different and um that it also becomes circular in the way that um we usually say consciousness is um, something which is which which I mean we we don't know of course how how consciousness uh, is created but usually we assume that it's somehow created by by activity in the brain and we consider the brain to be a classical object and if consciousness is a requisite for classical objects to exist since uh, it's it's uh, yes. It, it's it's the condition why we experience the world locally, and on the other hand, a classical brain is a is a condition for consciousness to exist. Then then the argument becomes circular, and I agree with that. There's some kind of chicken egg problem in there, yeah. and I don't know how how totally I don't I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't really know how how to resolve it, but I could think that these things somehow. Uh, yeah, uh, emerge together in, in some some uh, some some yeah some some 
self, uh, how do you call it? Some, 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 some looped, looped, uh, <laughs> uh, self, self-implying, I don't know, but I, I'm missing the words here, but, but that, that they somehow, um, yeah, start as, as something starts in the direction and then loops back and, and somehow emerges by becoming that, 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 that consciousness and classical objects somehow emerge together from a certain perspective. And uh, that if this perspective exists in the universe, then uh, this ex- perspective could be experienced and then we end up with the world uh, we experience. I do like uh, the idea that it is uh, the structure of our consciousness that uh, picks up uh, which uh, prefer the basis our multiverse is based upon. And I think it looks very much like uh, uh, Kant's idea of space, time and everything else being really determined by how our mind works. Like uh, I see uh, things local, my glass is here because that's how my mind works. Mm-hmm. And all that, I find it a very neat solution. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, what, what's important is that, that consciousness here is not, not an active player such as in the, in the um, interpretations suggested by um, von Neumann and, and Wigner and, and Penrose for some time, that consciousness really collapses the wave function. But consciousness uh, uh, defines the perspective under which we look at the universe. And this perspective determines how we experience the universe. Right. But consciousness doesn't really change the universe. Are you that sure that uh, consciousness... Um... Is not uh, an active uh, player in the universe. I mean, uh, I can imagine some uh, hypothetical scenarios, and again, I'm thinking aloud that you know um, there is uh, this entangled universe, and uh, everything is derived from information in this big uh, entangled one that cannot be divided. Uh, now, uh, my chair and my table are in this, uh, uh, let me call it uh, database. But I, myself, I'm also in that database. Mm-hmm. So that since everything uh, works together, everything is entangled with everything else and everything uh, works together with everything else, then I'm also part of that. So I can, uh, thinking about whether I am an active agent or not, it seems to me that I can think that, okay, if I, small, if I am a small part of all that, then um, I do have individual agency. It's a very tiny thing compared to the all, of course, but uh, since I'm a part of that, I am playing a little role myself in uh, determining uh, whatever happens. And therefore, my consciousness is an active agent. Mm, that's how I tend to think myself. Uh, uh, was that uh, clear or not? I'm thinking a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, so, so, so my point is that, that I'm not saying that, that consciousness is, is collapsing the wave function. I mean, of course, uh, consciousness is somehow described by quantum information and and the quantum universe is is all this quantum universe quantum information entangled together in a single state and and you find your quantum information in this big uh quantum universe as part of it so so um you are part of it and um but uh what i'm saying is that that consciousness is not uh really destroying uh, this quantum object, but but it only fixes a certain perspective under which you look at this quantum object or the rest of the quantum object uh, without you. Uh, maybe maybe also at yourself. I mean, 
really interesting yes thinking about uh, um, what consciousness is and what it does is uh, one of the most interesting things huh? uh, let me come to the last point that i had in mind so you suggest and that is uh, a very intriguing part of the book that uh, that could be parallel multiverses in uh, different bases for example in uh, position base and in a momentum base and uh, quantum aliens different from us with entirely different ways to experience their reality and of course uh, all uh, these uh, incredibly complex multiverse or multiverse of multiverses uh, emerge from uh, the same uh, basic thing that you call the one i found that very intriguing thank you <laughs> yeah um yeah i mean the, the the basic idea is that um if if our perspective is what it's responsible how we experience the universe and if this perspective is fixed somehow by the fact that our consciousness is localized within our brains uh then the question could be, could there be other conscious beings whose consciousness is maybe not localized at a place in the universe, but maybe in, in momentum space at a certain wavelength? And um, how would such beings experience the universe and could we communicate and so on? Yeah, I, I think this this is, yeah, a natural um, generalization of, of the of the idea that our perspective determines how we experience the universe and that our perspective is due to the fact that uh, we as conscious beings exist at local places in the universe. It's very interesting to speculate on how we could eventually communicate with these uh, quantum aliens if, uh, um, I mean, we see the world in two sat in two ways that are different to so much different that we wouldn't even have a common vocabulary to talk of things. But then perhaps if we are already developing these concepts mathematically, if mm -hmm. not intuitively, then maybe they, whatever and wherever they are, they could develop mathematically equivalent concepts and we would use our mathematical results as a communication interface perhaps yeah, exactly yeah I, actually this this is a, a thing I'm, i started to discuss with a collaborator with, with tom keppard um so uh uh it might be that that one reason why we didn't see aliens so far is that they are maybe not living in the same Hilbert space basis as we do, and uh, that somehow our searches uh, miss them. And one could could try with with uh, Fourier analysis uh, to to search for such signals which would just exist in a different different Hilbert space basis. And I I, I think this would be an interesting thing to do. I mean, I, I think it's it's not not so. Or at least it could be the basis for a really great science fiction novel. <laughs> Even if I think that uh, Greg Egan already wrote, uh, not exactly that, but something similar. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Who, who was yeah. it? Uh, Greg Egan, an uh -huh. Australian science fiction writer. Okay. Uh, it was not exactly the same scenario. But, you know, the idea was that um, um, our mathematics is not fixed because uh, the universe, uh, you know, the idea that uh, mathematics is really the physics of little stones. So it is always a generalization from physical experience and uh, the universe is finite. So he hasn't had the time yet 
to build physical systems that represent all uh, possible uh, mathematical systems. Mm -hmm. so, so that in the novel, and there is also a sequel, we live in an island of mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some uh, alien uh, beings that live in another subset of mathematics, which is uh, incompatible with ours, but uh, the two things don't come directly in contact, so nobody knows. But it, uh, in the novels, uh, they found the way to establish a contact because mm -hmm. uh, between these uh, mathematical worlds and to communicate with these aliens. Uh, the first story is called Luminous. Luminous? Yeah, Luminous. Okay, yeah, very interesting. Great. I, I checked that out, yeah. It sounds, it's not exactly what you're saying, but yeah. it's uh, kind of similar. I, I oh agree, my. it's a similar spirit, yes. Oh my, I wish I had uh, the skill to write a science fiction novel like that. <laughs> okay, I shouldn't take uh, up more of your time, but I want to thank you very much for uh, joining me. Yeah, what's time And uh, I really hope that uh, your book, will have the success that it deserves. Thank you very much.